Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today. I was so obsessed with this idea. Um, and so, you know, I, I shaved my head. I told my boss I'm quitting. And, and a couple months Why later, you shave I, your head? I was always just kind of, I was always just kind of curious, to be honest, uh, oh, what I would look like okay. with a shaved head. But it just, it felt very suitably dramatic, you know, uh, like new hair, <laughs> <Yeah>. new me. <laughs> conversations with Lulu. My name is Lulu Khazan. I'm an entrepreneur living in Dubai, an investor, a mother, and your host. I'm joined by my friend Khaled Qtayli, the founder and CEO of Legacy, a startup that provides from-home fertility services for men, with the aim to change the outdated view that fertility is a woman's issue. A quick disclaimer, I'm a super proud investor in Legacy, and fully believe in their mission to become the fatherhood company, helping over 100 million men on the journey to becoming a father. I knew this conversation was going to be fun. The more I learned about Khaled, the more similarities I found between us. We both left home at 17. We both left our jobs and started a business from scratch as first-time entrepreneurs at age 29. We both won startup competitions. We believe in creating momentum to make things happen, and we simply can't fail because people are relying on us. Khaled has had an eventful childhood spanning multiple countries. In fact, if you check out Khaled's social media profile, you'll see the flags of three countries. I am 100% Palestinian, 100% Lebanese, and 100% Canadian. How so? <laughs> Very bad at math. <laughs> I mean the 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 more the more honest answer to that is so my family is fully Palestinian by origin they all left in 1948 uh, they all moved to Lebanon so uh, I'm a Lebanese citizen grew up in Lebanon uh, and then moved to Canada when I was 17 what does uh, what is Palestine to you because for me obviously I read the news uh, there's there's so many narratives out there but for you, as uh, as a Palestinian who ha- hasn't really lived there, like what is it? What does it mean to you? If there wasn't an occupation, I think my sense of Palestinian identity would not be so important to me. Right at, at the end of the day, I, I grew up in Lebanon. Most of my friends are Lebanese. Uh, it's where I go home, you know, for holidays or Christmas or summer. Um, but I think that it's particularly important for us to retain a sense of identity because that sense of identity is being erased. Right. So so when you when you talk about things like falafel or hummus. Uh, right, and, and you hear them being co-opted by other parties, it becomes that much more important that you retain a sense of identity and and also one that the that the world can respect. Um, you know, it, it particularly is important to me if I'm successful to maintain my identity as a Palestinian to be able to say, look, we're, you know, we, we're, we're doing big things too. It's something that you should be learning more about. And so what I've always said is if there wasn't an occupation, I probably would just identify as Lebanese. I feel the same as a Lebanese sometimes. I, when I look at the Lebanese diaspora and all the achievements that we're doing around the world, and then you look at the state of Lebanon uh, at the moment, the leaders that yeah. we have. So I really uh, hear you. 
so what do you do to sort of keep the identity uh, alive? Let's say. I think I think there's a few things that that anyone who's proud of the culture they're from should should stay close to. And you know, I, I, in general, I'm I'm not a big believer in nationalism. I, I'm not a big believer that the country you're from is better just because you were born there, right? But I think that every culture has bits and pieces that are valuable and that you should cherish. And so for me, a lot of it comes down to spending time with my grandparents. Um, you know, this this is this is how you stay close to your roots. So your family left Lebanon then? My mom's side of the family is uh, from Yaffa, and they left in 1948. They moved to Lebanon, and they had... So my grandfather had a, had a business in Yaffa that was, you know, completely... Um, Uh, completely taken away, moved to Lebanon, and he rebuilt. And what's so interesting is they spent a long time living in Lebanon. They then moved to Montreal for some time. And then they decided that as they were getting older, they wanted to move back to Lebanon to be closer to family, you know, closer to, to culture and closer to home. Um, and then finally, the, the, the situation in Lebanon was so bad, they decided to move back to Montreal. And what's so painfully funny about this was that they packed up everything they had as part of their move back to Montreal, and they were preparing to have it shipped to Montreal from Beirut. Oh. And of course, where do you take furniture and personal oh. belongings when they are going to be shipped? Oh. Uh, they were at the port. They arrived at the port on Monday afternoon, and then Tuesday, as we know, uh, the port was was no longer. And so it just it, it felt like both times in both countries, they were very, uh, they had a very violent goodbye. Can you even imagine dealing with such loss of property well in your 80s? Images of the Beirut explosion on that Tuesday, the 4th of August, are still fresh in my mind. And I know a thing or two about picking up the pieces and rebuilding. Unfortunately, I've had to see my parents and countless families do it. My wish is for the suffering to end so that the future generations of Lebanon can just live peacefully. As I've mentioned on the show before and even on Nadine's episode a couple of weeks ago, despite the feeling of helplessness at times, I feel so strongly connected to the country. And I was curious to find out what growing up in Lebanon was like for Khaled. I think everyone goes through hard times, especially when you're an awkward-looking teenager like I most definitely was. Um, I honestly didn't even know, so so my family's mixed religion, and I, I legitimately did not know which sect of Islam uh, my mom's side of the family was from. And at some point I asked her, you know, I was 13 or 14, I'm like, Mama, are we Sunni or Shia? <laughs> you know, I, I, like, it, it just, it was, it was, <laughs> and then she told me and I kept forgetting um, because it, it was just so much not, a, it was not a part of our upbringing. We, we celebrated Eid, we celebrated Christmas, we did Easter, you know. It, Anything that was an excuse for for gifts and presents, I I was and still am in full support of. It's so amazing that you say that. You know, I I had the other like the diff- different experience. So I grew up in uh, in Brumana, and Brumana is a Christian town. Uh, yeah. And I yeah. don't think I met a Muslim up until I was like maybe sixteen or 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 so or seventeen, and it's it's unbelievable because you know. As a as a young person, I didn't have a car, so I didn't used, used to drive to Beirut a lot, and yeah. uh, uh, so yeah. we didn't grow up uh, feeling very, you know, exposed, let's say, to different religions and different cultures. But also, yeah. the other time is when I arrived to Dubai in 2003, and shortly after, uh, there was Ramadan, 
and uh, and people were celebrating Ramadan, mm. and I was like, "What is Ramadan?" Like, what, yeah. you know, and uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's amazing. Uh, but uh, but but I'm glad yeah. that you grew up basically not uh, you know not feeling this uh, religious uh, tension that we feel. That's important. I I, I grew up I grew up Christian. Christian. <laughs> so so your dad was a Christian. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you you grew up in Lebanon, and then at seventeen you went to Canada. I think violent expulsion is a theme in my family <laughs> uh, because this was this this was two thousand and six, uh, and oh. so um, I was I was in twelfth grade, I guess, when uh, the Hadid assassination happened, and at the time I was deciding between AUB and McGill. Um, I was going for the most mundane thing on the planet. I was going for a swim. You know, I'm getting ready to leave the apartment and I call out to my brother. I'm like, hey, bro, uh, I'm going for a swim. Uh, and he calls me. He's like, Khaled, come here. Uh, and the TV's on and our airport was just on fire. Like it just was in flames. Right. Um, and we kind of just sat there and we thought, oh, shit, what now? And our parents were abroad. So we were 17 and 19. Um, we were at home and basically had to figure out what to do. We ended up escaping through Syria, which was the safe country at the time, uh, and ended up making it over to Montreal, just some extremely long travel. And that was the point at which my, my decision had basically been made for me. It may be 2020, but unfortunately, Lebanon still suffers from bombings that terrorize, traumatize, and force people to leave. Yet many of us, myself included, still fantasize about the day we go back. I would love to go back with the right time, the right opportunity. Uh, I've always thought about where I would want to raise a family. And, you know, I, I've, I've brought it down to probably a couple of cities in the world. Beirut would be on that list. Um, it's just Beirut makes it so difficult to go back, yeah. <laughs> right? It's, it's, like a, it's like an abusive relationship. Uh, and so in principle, I would love to. In, in reality, I can't imagine it happening anytime soon. So how was Canada for you? How was the experience at McGill? Canada was was transformational for me. Uh, I have a very soft spot in my heart for Montreal because this is kind of where I I always felt like this is where I became who I am today or, or kind of began to. I, I came from a very small high school in, in Beirut. My graduating class was, I think, 67 students, right? So it was one of those schools where everyone knew everything about everyone, right? And, and everyone had been in the same grade since fourth grade and their older brothers and sisters had studied there, right? Um, until today, you tell me someone's name and I immediately, I know their last name, I know their brothers and sisters, you know, I, I know if they were good at school or not. Um, and McGill had, I think, something like 10,000 students. Oh, wow. And so I have this very distinct memory of walking down McGill campus one day and I just had this glorious, amazing feeling. And I, I thought to myself, no one has any idea who I am. And it was one of the most liberating feelings because for the first time in a long time, I felt like I could define my own identity and who I wanted to be. Um, and I was I was still 17 and I was a very young 17-year-old. Khaled, did uh, your parents mm. like push you uh, on the education front? Because, I mean, you, when you and I Oof, had a chat, you yeah. told me that your parents were extremely educated. This is, uh, I think it's a very classic Palestinian story. Uh, we, all, we all grew up hearing the same thing, right? Which is... Um, Education is the one thing that no one can ever take away from you. And so being educated means that you've built a life for yourself and a life that is transferable if you need to, right? Which is just kind of a sad thing when, when you hear about it, but it's, it's very true. And so my, my grandfather, um, he studied at Princeton and Swarthmore. He raised four daughters. 
all of whom got at least a master's, two of them got PhDs. Um, my dad's side of the family as well, big focus on education. And so this this really was a big part of the upbringing of my, my brother and I. It was just understood and expected that we were going to push ourselves to be kind of the best version of ourselves, to to be prepared for whatever happens. And part of that meant, you know, you you had to study hard and go to a good school and get a good job. And when you posted a photo of your mom a couple of years ago with her graduation hat mm. and, uh, <laughs> you know, your mom graduating from Harvard after mm. you have graduated from Harvard. I mean, wow. <laughs> It, it, wow. it was it was feel? a reverse legacy. Uh, I was the one who nominated. I wrote her a letter of recommendation. Wow! <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it it was a great feeling, and it was funny because it just felt like the roles were reversed. You know, I was telling her like, "Mama, I'm so proud of you." Uh, you know, <laughs> usually it's it's the other way around, and she had her cap and gown on. Uh, so so she she That's went great. to the Kennedy School like I had. Um, she did their one year mid career master's program. Um, she jokes that because she was one of the older students, she was in the late, late mid-career uh, stage in her life. Um, but it was, it was, it was very cool. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's the, the only thing is, the only thing is, I told her, you're not allowed to apply until after I've graduated. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> only then are you allowed to be on campus. But she took, she took my apartment. She took my apartment. She took my furniture. She moved in. Oh my god! After, after I left. Wow, <laughs> yeah. so that's phenomenal, actually. What did you do when you graduated? Did you uh, you went into consulting? Yeah, so I I, I graduated. Um, so I wasn't violently Sorry. expelled out of McGill, thankfully. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> before we talk about consulting, did you did you go to mm. Harvard right after McGill, or you did that later? It was a it was a few years later. With his graduation coinciding with the two thousand eight global financial crisis. Khaled extended his stay at McGill and focused on learning French while trying to secure a job at top-tier consulting firms. He was lucky to end up at Oliver Wyman, but the working conditions were a lot tougher than he had expected, and his bosses were not very happy with his performance. Working in consulting meant that he needed to be an A-plus player all the time, and initially he wasn't ready for this kind of workload. Ultimately, he was at the risk of losing his job. I, I'm extremely glad that I started my career in consulting. And something my dad had said to me at the time was, you know, you can go from consulting and then do anything you want after. Um, but it doesn't work the other way around. Uh, and consulting is a very reputation-driven industry. So it's kind of a vicious cycle, right? So if you do badly on, on one project, your manager on that project kind of warns the, pro the manager on your next project saying, listen, you know, he's not great at attention to detail, for example. Uh, and that's like a that's a death sentence. That is the death sentence in in consulting. Attention to detail and accuracy. These were my two. Uh, they called them development objectives. Um, okay. And there there is there is no worse evaluation to get. That's and... surprising though, because you hmm. come across like the type who really puts his mind to something and does it. So uh, so I'm surprised you let it like deteriorate that much. Yeah. You you must have really like hated it for you not to put the yeah. effort, right? Honestly, it, it messes with your head, it messes with your ego, it messes with your self-confidence, um, because suddenly you're being told that you're you're shit at something, right? Like objectively, like you are just bad at this. And um, so, it was tough because it was such a vicious cycle. I basically said to myself, right, I either need to give up or I need to, I need to double down. Um, and that was the moment I said, fuck it, I'm all in. Um, and so at that point I started, I, I went, I went all out. 
So after three years in consulting, Khaled managed to do a complete turnaround from a shaky start to nearly losing his job and then total focus on becoming a top performer. That meant countless nights at the office, weekends and holidays working, but eventually this experience was a pivotal one for his career. He joined the Harvard Kennedy School to do a master's in public policy and ultimately found himself working with the World Economic Forum. This is where I first met him as well. It's a fascinating place because you are, because it, it, it taught me an important lesson, which is just because you are close to power doesn't necessarily mean that you have it yourself. Um, and in fact, it almost feels like sometimes the closer you are, the less power you have because you're so there, there's such a clear hierarchy at those levels. So um, I met I met Justin Trudeau at a party in Davos. I actually broke into the party because I was wearing Canadian socks and his security team uh, let me inside, even though I wasn't on the invite list. It was like Justin Trudeau, 25 heads of state and Khaled Akhtayli with nice. Canadian socks on. <laughs> Um, but I went up to him and we chit-chatted and we have a great photo of both of us showing off our socks. Um, but but that that experience reminded me that or, or really showed to me that just because you have access to these people doesn't mean that they care what you think. Justin Trudeau, I'm fairly confident, does not remember that interaction or care about that interaction or or care about any of my thoughts on world affairs. I mean, you are in a in a place where a lot of decisions are being made and high level discussions. Yeah. So. Did you did you want to work there because you felt you wanted to put your thoughts out there? I think I wanted to work there for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is I, I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I felt like I had checked the box in my previous career. I had spent a, a great two years kind of in the public policy world. But when I was making the decision to join the, the forum, um, and by the way, anyone at, at the World Economic Forum would have a heart attack if I said WEF, so I will say the forum. Okay. Um, no, so, <laughs> so I found... Consulting was like on the spectrums of how much good are you doing for the world, extremely low, but how efficiently and effectively are you doing it, extremely high. And then I had spent some time working with the UN. I spent about six months volunteering with them. And there, the good you're doing for the world is extremely high, but the efficiency and effectiveness with which you're doing it is extremely low. So I graduated from this public policy degree thinking, okay, well, I want to find something that is high on both. Um, And that's what I thought the World Economic Forum might be. But so, so yes, you're you're you are very close with with individuals who have power, and and certainly I I got close to ministers and CEOs, and and that's quite meaningful because it, it showed me two things. One is that these people are not better than you; they're not smarter than you; they're not um, necessarily more talented than you. Sometimes they are, um, right? Sometimes they're taller than you. Justin Trudeau is actually surprisingly tall and extremely handsome, so that's hard to compete <laughs> against. Um, right, but 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 it actually it it shows you these people are not special. A lot of times they came from uh, families that were politically connected or or financially well off. Yeah. They had a leg up in life a lot of the time. Um, and for me, I actually I loved seeing that because it just reminded me that I'm not missing anything to be able to do those kinds of things myself. Yeah. Um, so th- this was this was one, and this was just a, a very important realization. Um, it felt very significant. But the second was I got tired of convening people i wanted to be the convened Mm -hmm. and and this was this was a very big thing that just kind of kept coming back to me which is how do you switch from convening powerful people to becoming one of those people so why why did you feel it wasn't very effective it wasn't necessarily that it wasn't effective it's that a lot of times people were coming to events like davos with their own agendas right so so they were coming less to watch the official program or sit in in sessions those tended to be secondary to what they were actually there to do uh which is 
they have meetings and, and there's there's circles of power within Davos, right? Uh, at, at, at the very outer end, you have people who are just visiting. Um, it was almost like a joke. They were called the hotel badges. Like they had a badge to stay at the hotel, but not, you know, obviously there's a bit of elitism there. Um, and then within that, you have the people who are attending, the people who are attending who are young global leaders, for example, or, you know, and then within that, there's the ministers and the heads of state and so on. And and what, what Davos teaches you very quickly is that there is always a tighter, closer circle of power um, with a party that you're not invited to. When I met you in 2017, you started to think about, you know, starting a business uh, shortly after that. And I yeah. remember you mentioning it to me and I was thinking, man, this guy is nuts. <laughs> like you're going from <laughs> a super formal <laughs> setting to uh, something completely different. And I'm yeah. like, he's, he's definitely not going to do it. And then you did it. <laughs> did you just uh, say uh, one day you just resigned and thought, okay, I have this great idea. Like, can you take me through the process? So I'll, I'll go. I'll go back. I'll go back a few years to give a little bit of context to this. So, okay. back in 2014, um, I was on a consulting project in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're driving down the highway and we make a coffee run. So I, of course, was the youngest person on the team, and so it was my responsibility to go and get everyone tea and coffee. So I'm getting these four coffees and teas, sitting in the passenger seat. I'm carrying these four cups of teas as we are uh, driving to the client site. Oh, my God. And I can see where that's going. We are on the highway. Oh, it's, it's not going in a good place. I'll tell you. I know. <laughs> I'll tell you so we're driving down the highway and then someone uh, in front of us breaks. And so, of course, we break. Now, I remember very little, um, but all I know is the tea violently exploded uh, out of... <laughs> I only, I only, I, I only remember two things. I remember two things. The first thing I remember is just I have this moment where I see that, I, like, I see everything leaning. The lids are coming off, and like, yeah. there's this very slow process in my brain, like, oh no, you know, like in, in the yeah. movies. The second thing I remember is just it, it felt all over my lap, all over my legs. Um, yeah. And there was just this moment right before the pain mm. hit, and and let me tell you uh having extremely hot tea spilling all over over your lap is extremely painful and so thankfully i ended up getting only second degree burns which heal up normally um but it just it was a period in my life where I, i you know i had to go to the hospital i couldn't wear jeans for a month it was too painful the skin was too raw So this got you thinking um, about, well, I'm not going to do the reveal. So I guess you, yeah. t- tell us about, yeah. about legacy then, the idea. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. I think so, we have an idea. So, but... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and that's why I started a business in tea. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so a couple of months later, I was starting at the Kennedy School and I met a guy who was describing the process. So he, he was diagnosed with cancer when he was quite young. I think he was about 30. And he was describing the process and he was saying, you know, so I, I had to go through chemotherapy. Before I started chemotherapy, I had to freeze my sperm. Uh, and it was just kind of this, these one of these really funny moments in life, you know, where I kind of like turned my head. I'm like, freeze, sperm freezing. What is that? Like, what? why? He's like, you know, because chemotherapy is very harmful to your body. You may not be able to have kids in the future. And so my doctor recommended that I do it. So I had just had this, you know, extremely memorable, shall we say, experience. And I'm hearing this. And I think to myself, I'm like, huh, I had never heard of the concept before, right? 
And so I asked him, I'm like, okay, uh, can anyone do it? He's like, yeah. I'm like, how much does it cost? He says, you know, it's about a thousand dollars. I say, okay. I mean, it's it's not cheap, but it's not, you know, it's outrageous. it's not life changing. It's not, you know, it's not it's not outrageous. And so uh, I did it myself. And I'm just really? like, look, I just had okay. an. Ex- Thankfully, I was blessed. I came out of that experience unscarred. Uh, but I just kept thinking, like, it could have been, it could have been so much worse, right? Um, and so I went and did it myself. I booked an appointment. It turns out the local uh, sperm bank in Cambridge, Massachusetts, is right next door to my favorite Chinese restaurant. So super weird experience. Even just going in, you're like smelling the dumplings. Um, <laughs> So you you go in and and the whole the whole process was just so so like antiquated and awkward. So you know you come clinical. in and they ask you extremely clinical. So so they come yeah. in and they ask you like okay well sir are you here for a uh, vasectomy? Are you here because you have cancer or are you here because you are transitioning to become a woman? And I said look honestly I I don't think I don't think any of the three it's not that I'm just, serious. You know, I mean <laughs> I'm like proactive proactive. Uh, and they gave me the weirdest look, you know, and they like probably wrote down weirdo and, you know, they yeah. hand you what they call the specimen cup, right? And they're like, sir, uh, if you could go ahead and uh, produce the specimen, we do have some materials available for your perusal. These, of course, like really weird, kinky, fucked up magazines, magazines <laughs> that like you don't want to touch anything. There's like a leather oh, couch man. in the room, you know, you're like, am I in a porno or like, you know, the room is tiny. Anyway. I had two thoughts coming out of that. So I, I said, number one, uh, I am so glad that I did this because I know that for the rest of my life, I will be able to have kids. It is, to me, was the ultimate life insurance policy. It's like the the ability to create life insurance policy. Um, and so that honestly felt amazing. And then the the second part of it was, God, I wish this experience wasn't so terrible. Like, I, I wish it wasn't so awkward. I wish it wasn't so clinical. Uh what if you could do it from home? You know, so, so it just set me down this path of this is something that I think every guy would want to do or be interested in doing at some point, right? At the right price point, at the right convenience level and so on. This was one of those moments where, um, you know, it just, it, it, it was the beginnings of an idea. Like, believe me, I did not grow up uh, thinking, you know, uh, I was going to be in the male fertility space, right? This, this was not my childhood dream. I wanted to be a soccer <laughs> player. Although I tell people we're still playing with balls. So I guess it's fine. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> this little kernel of idea mm. stayed with you throughout university, right? For years, for years. All my friends heard about it. They uh, called me the sperm king. Uh, uh, I actually <laughs> almost, I almost, I almost started the company right after HKS, um, right okay. after my master's with a Lebanese guy um, who unfortunately was not as uh, excited about the idea as I was. And, and so that okay. kind of fell apart. And then what pushed um, you to do it then? Yeah. At what point did you say, that's it, I'm doing this? Yeah. So I, I'd been thinking about the idea. I'd been working on the idea. I had been get, kind of getting everything ready. Um, and so there came this moment in February 2018 where I, I'm not even kidding when I say I woke up one day. It was like I dreamt it. It was like a sign from the Lord, whichever Lord you want. Um, and it was just, it's time. And I basically, that week, I, I sat down with my boss and I told him, listen, uh, he, was, he was a wonderful boss, um, but I don't think he completely understood at the time because I was coming to him totally out of left field, right? And be like, well, I've had a wonderful experience working with you. You're amazing. The team is wonderful. Um, I'm quitting my job to start a sperm business. 
<laughs> and, and there was this moment, and and it was it was it was tough actually because I, I was doing really well in my job. I was on the verge of getting promoted. You know, I was I was moving at a very accelerated pace. But it just I was so obsessed with this idea, um, and so you know, I I shaved my head. I told my boss I'm quitting, and, and a couple months Why did later, you shave your I, head. I was always just kind of I was always just kind of curious to be honest, uh, oh, what I would look like okay. with a shaved head. <laughs> But it just—it felt very suitably dramatic, you know, uh, like new hair, <laughs> <Yeah>. new me. <laughs> so you uh, unviolently expelled yourself out of the Correct. out of the web. Correct. It was a very peaceful expulsion, uh, and so a few months later, I I left my job. I left the city. I packed everything up, um, and I flew to Boston. And so yeah. I just figured, you know, if I'm starting this journey where I know I, I had no entrepreneurial friends. I had one. I had one friend who was an entrepreneur. That was it. So I had no idea what I was in for. I obviously had done everything that every entrepreneur, like future entrepreneur does, right? I had read Paul Graham. I had, you know, applied to Y Combinator. I had done all this stuff. Um, but it just, I, I realized I need to just suck it up and do it. And I did it all in one go. I even left my cat behind. Uh, sashimi, rest in peace. She was a wonderful cat. Uh, I had to go back and get her Se seven months. No, no, seven months later. I, cause I was coming to the U S as a business tourist at that time. I can't okay. come to the U S and be like, yes, hello. I'm here for business with my, cat, my cat, Sashimi. <laughs> <laughs> so She's sashimi, my emotional sashimi. support animal. Anyway, so it was, okay, it was so a big you... move. I landed in Boston and I said, this is it. It's time. So to you it. had to completely rewire yourself pretty much from the consulting guy to the yeah. World Economic Forum, highly political, uh, bureaucratic yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. enterprise to become super lean and entrepreneurial and launch uh, legacy, your, uh, yeah. your sperm startup. <laughs> so, so what I, I did, I did a couple of things. Um, the first and most important was I didn't tell anyone that I had that I was moving back. Um, so I did this totally in hideout. Um, I was, funnily enough, by the way, I moved back in with my mom. So she was graduating, uh, and so I moved back into my own apartment, which was my furniture that my mom was now uh, taking over. And so I, I went back to living with my mom for a few months, and I just. Um, what I what I learned or, or the risks that I that I had seen at that point was the biggest risk is losing focus. The biggest risk is getting distracted. Um, I, I think to be honest, part of it was I had been telling so many people for so long that I was going to do this, right? Um, it kind of felt like, okay, I, ca I can't, I can't. You're going to look you know, like an idiot. I can't afford to don't... fuck it up now. Yeah. 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 Um, I know the feeling. And so, but that's so the best way to do things. Hit out. It is. It is. I was, I was super focused on it. Uh, and it was, it was actually one of the best periods of my life where I just had to be, I was super fit. I was biking. I was eating well because my mom was cooking for three months. It was pure focus. And so when I applied, so Harvard has a program called the, the Launch Lab X, which was for alumni-led ventures. And it was the first time they were starting it. And I applied. And when they interviewed me, you know, they, they asked me, like, are you moving from Geneva? Or like, what? I don't get it. Like, what, what, what are you doing? Uh, like, who are you? Like, what is this bizarre <laughs> business that you're starting? Uh, and I told them, look, I'm, I'm here. I'm in Central Square and I'm, I'm doing this whether you take me or not. And they later told me, they're like, these were the words of someone who was so dedicated to what he was going to do that we couldn't not take you. This, this is definitely something, you know, I see in you also, like, you're quite serious, I think, when you, when you say something. And uh, 
you're very dedicated. So a lot of people usually struggle with uh, discipline, right? Like you're passionate mm. about something, oh, and you go and you try to do something and then it falls apart yeah. because obviously you don't have the discipline. Yeah. So you had to rewire yourself completely. So do, do you have any tips in terms of, you know, yeah. what can someone do if they're struggling to... Yeah. To be disciplined. Yeah, I, this is just a hypothesis, but I think there's two things that matter a lot, which is you need to set very high standards for yourself, uh, which is, and, and this is actually something that consulting ingrained in me, um, but you cannot accept less than excellence from yourself because nobody else is going to hold you to those standards. It has to be from you. And this is actually extremely important when, when you end up, if you are running a business, because who you are and the way you behave gets absorbed into the culture of, of your company and the people around yeah. you. So this is this is one, which is you need to set those standards for yourself. Um, and you need to surround yourself with people who have those kinds of standards for themselves as well. Um, because you you end up being so influenced by the people who are around you. This is this is one. And the second is you need to be passionate about what you're doing. Um, you really do. Because I work my ass off for legacy. Of course I do, right? I I I, I eat, breathe, sleep, dream. Um, the the company and the business and so on, but the the act of building a company is something I'm I'm so passionate about and that I love so much and it it doesn't feel like work in the same way and so putting in extreme hours or being very disciplined doesn't feel difficult in the way that it would if if it was something that I hated doing. I thought about my own discipline. How do I do the stuff I do? I don't necessarily have a ritual, and yet I always manage to find a way to get things done. The secret sauce for me is gathering momentum by sharing my goals with a few friends or colleagues, and that momentum helps propel me in the right direction. Along the way, if I'm convinced that my goal is worthy, then motivation comes naturally. Shifting back to legacy, did you know that one in seven couples face infertility? And men are equally likely as women to be the cause. So there are a few really interesting trends just as a species. Um, so the UK last year announced their lowest birth rate in recorded history. Like in their recorded history, they have never had a lower birth rate. So part of this is just socioeconomic. It's just people choosing not to have kids or delaying kids. Um, but part of it is also biological. So if you look at the demographics in the US, for example, the median age has gone up a lot. In general, the, the median age of the average, yeah, just the average yeah. person in the US is now older. The median person is now older. Um, yeah. Couples meet later. They get married later. They try to have children later. And so if you're talking about a, a heterosexual couple, uh, then what this means is when they're trying to have kids now in their you know, early to mid 30s, it's much more difficult than it would have been um, a few decades ago when everyone was younger. Um, yeah. Then... At the same time, as guys are older, the average age of a man trying to become a father is older, uh, sperm quality also declines with age, which is something that most men don't know. So every year you get older, your sperm quality goes down, uh, the genetic mutations in your sperm go up. All of these basically lead to negative pregnancy outcomes. Um, but what's so interesting is that over the last 40 years, male fertility, like sperm count and sperm concentration, has gone down by 50 to 60%. And Why here's doesn't anyone here, talk about this, by the way? Yeah. I'm surprised. Listen, I, I talk about this all the time. Believe you me, do. in a few years, yeah. everyone everyone will be talking about this. Everyone in my life knows all the statistics uh, about, about sperm. But here's, here's what I think is so interesting, because I used to make fun of people who are super organic, you know, no chemicals in my house, you know, and, and I always thought it was over the top, and I've become one of those people. So nothing is, nothing is conclusive or definitive, but it seems extremely likely 
that this is happening because of the chemicals that are around us in our households, in our shampoos and conditioners and everything else, um, wow, BPAs even... and phosphates and, and the chemicals and plastic. So, so someone did a study. I don't know whose life specialty this is. You think my specialty is weird? Someone's specialty is the sperm of dogs. Okay, this is this is their work, and they did a very fascinating study, and they found that dogs that live in human households faced a similar decline in sperm quality as humans did, but dogs that lived outside of human households did not. So literally, I do organic everything. I do chemical-free whenever I can. I change my shampoos and soaps wow. and everything. So what's your advice for men to have healthy sperm? Uh, I mean, from... Obviously, freeze your sperm now while you're young and you're healthy and, and while you still can. When, when is a good time to freeze your sperm? If you're over the age of 20, do it. If you're over the age of 35, definitely do it. If you're over the age of 50, let's talk. So um, how can uh, Legacy help? Yeah. So you, so I mean, yeah. can anyone get the kit or is it only available in the US at the moment? Yeah. We are actively talking to the UAE Ministry of Health. So if any of your listeners have any wasta or connections, uh, please please do share. But we're we're in active conversations to to expand to the UAE. Um, with, it's part of a broader international expansion strategy that we have. Do you have numbers on uh, on our part of the world versus the US in terms of the fertility? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so actually, the Middle East. There's a professor at Yale, uh, Professor Marsha Inhorn, who's phenomenal. And she actually did a study and found that the rate of male infertility in the Middle East is higher than anywhere else in the world. Why? Is there like, uh, what's the reason? So th there's a few theories, one of which is, is obesity? just, we, we, you know, there's, that's definitely part of it. Obesity, Ergile, uh, there's been more Ergile, wars in the region. Yes, of course. Um, but, but something, by the way, just as, a, as, as an aside for women who are thinking about getting pregnant, by far the most impactful thing you can do is stop smoking. Uh, like there's no comparison. That's basically the one recommendation that every woman gets, um, just as an aside. So the really interesting theory, so apart from obesity and ergile and lack of exercise and all this, uh, is it's called co-sanguinity, which is when you have cousins that get married and over one generation, two cousins marrying is actually not genetically, it's not particularly harmful. But when you have families that have been doing it for generations, right? And And we all know families like this, um, by the third, fourth, fifth generation, you see much higher likelihood of negative genetic mutations that occur. Um, and, and these can lead to infertility. And so it actually tends to be those families that have the biggest challenges. How has it been uh, uh, as an experience for you as, a, as an entrepreneur? Uh, hmm. Is there something that's uh, unique that you do when you're uh, hiring people? Um, you spoke about culture earlier as well. So... What's, yeah. what's special there? It's funny to me in the U.S. they talk a lot about diversity. And it, it always feels like they talk about it in a very forced way. They're like, oh, well, you have to have an African-American have... on your team. Oh, you, ha you have to have someone who's uh, Latinx on your team. You have to have a woman on your team. And this to me feels like the worst kind of forced diversity. Um, and they've even had studies showing that, that you know, it, it even affects the, the self-confidence of someone who's asking themselves, right, was I hired due to affirmative action or was I hired because I genuinely am the best at what I do? Um, and it's interesting being from, for having lived in, and worked in so many different countries, diversity has just been a very natural part of my life. Uh, and so my team by extension is naturally very diverse in terms of backgrounds, cultures, religions, uh, socioeconomic status, political views. And I think this is, um, it's just, I'm so happy that it became a part of our culture. And I, I never have to worry that we're going to be a bunch of, uh, white tech bros 
Um, but the, the, the biggest thing that I've done when it comes, when it comes to team is you have to invest in the people who are around you and you have to give them all the tools that they have to become the best version of themselves. And, and honestly, I think that I'm very, um, impacted by my time in consulting where I felt like I was struggling. I felt like I was capable, but still struggling. And I felt like I didn't have the tools to succeed. And so today I, I care so much about making sure that everyone on my team has everything they need to succeed. Um, and so everyone gets an executive coach. I've had one for years. And it is honestly, it's it's foundational to the company. Um, it's like a therapist. It's a professional therapist, right? Um, every weekly meeting we have, it's like a part of our culture. It's it's uh, It started almost as a joke, but it's now like, okay, here's what I'm doing this week. Here are my blockers. Here's how I slept last night. And here's how I feel. Uh, you know, today I feel a little bit grumpy because I didn't sleep well and I'm fighting with my, you know, whatever I'm fighting with my parents, uh, and so sorry, I'm in a bad mood. Um, and so it, it just has built this, this I think, emotional awareness into the company. So you 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 kind of build uh, empathy also, right? Like you try to uh, put yourself in in their shoes and see what they're facing. Yeah. And we're a very positive team. And actually, one but... one thing we have that is that I'm sure is unique to Legacy. Uh, we call it uh, the Legacy Clap, and this was inspired by my aunt. Uh, by my aunt Sophie, shout out. Um, my dad said of the family, the way they clap is not like a, is not like a normal, you know, like, hey, bravo, very good. It's like a yeah. very, it's loud, it's obnoxious, uh, you know, <laughs> like, it's like open fingered, yeah. like, bravo, very yeah. good. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so we have internalized this into the company. And so when someone does something worth celebrating, which is often, uh, we, we give them the legacy clap. And, and everyone has come up with their own cultural variations, right? So mine is very, nice. like, Arab style. Um, nice. But everyone has has modified it. So you care a lot about uh, taking care of your your team to make sure they have everything yeah. they need to succeed. And and what about you? Was there something uh, that has changed in you as well, being an entrepreneur? Yeah. Uh, I discovered a very new concept, uh, which is the concept of anxiety. I <laughs> am by nature an extremely not anxious person. Uh, never have been my whole life. I sleep well. I'm a happy person. I have love in my life. You know, I love my family. Um, but this was a new experience to me where I would suddenly have trouble falling asleep at night, you know, because you're just you're thinking about all the things that are going on. Yeah. You're, you're thinking about how to optimize everything you're doing. Um, and this is a very new thing to me where sometimes I have trouble sleeping because I'm thinking so much about about the business. Uh, so this is a very negative, unhappy learning, but uh, a reality. And, and one of my friends, actually, that same one friend, Karn, who, who is an entrepreneur from day one, he told me, listen, man, enjoy it while you can, because it only ever gets worse. You know what? I could never plan mm -hmm. things. Uh, like yeah. you know, my husband would be would be okay. I have like thirty days. Like I want to take twenty days. In, uh, <laughs> you know, on August fifteen yeah. up until you know September ten. I'm like I can't do that. No. It's uh, you tell yourself that like no, I have it under control. You know, and then you you need your partner to remind um, you that Lulu, you say this all yeah. the time. What's and, what's really crazy is is when you wake up one day and you realize it's for me. It's been about two and a half years that I've been doing this full time, uh, yeah. and it's just it's it's crazy how quickly the time passes. It really is. Yeah, and you've raised you know uh, a decent amount of money so far. You have people's mm -hmm. career growth. Uh, you have yeah. their livelihoods, it's, their benefits. It's, uh, it's like a machine, it's you very, know. It's a, it's a it's machine. Very, it's, yeah. I mean, what what you're what you're describing mm -hmm. is something that I think a lot about, which is just the the concept of inertia. 
you know, an object at rest stays at rest and an object in motion stays in motion. And when I think about the first few months of legacy, it was, um, I was trying to get myself to the point of inertia. I was trying to get myself to the point where I had put enough kinetic energy into the business that it would just keep going. And what's really special about that is that now, even if even if I drop off the face of the earth for a month, which which I wouldn't, um, the the business will keep going, right? Everyone knows their roles. Uh, there is money coming into the company, um, you know. And and even for me, it's I know that I could never leave what I'm doing because I have people who rely on me. I have salaries that I need to help pay. Yeah. Uh, I have people's careers and livelihoods that I need to think about. And so the, the beautiful thing is now there is so much inertia in the company that it just feels like it's rolling and rolling and growing and growing. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to let you tell, tell yeah. uh, this to yourself <laughs> because, because I don't think it's the case. You have to be there all the time and you have to drive it, man. Yeah. I think uh, I think this is wishful thinking. It wouldn't collapse if I, if I left. No, it won't collapse. No, no, it won't collapse. It won't collapse, but it's, uh, yeah. it's, not, uh, it's not as uh, simple. I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about uh, being uh, like a solo founder? Yeah. that's tough also and uh, and you're a first time entrepreneur as well so you're going through a huge yeah. learning curve uh, at the same time yeah. so my advice to anyone thinking about starting a company by yourself is it sucks don't do it um and you know i think i had to by necessity because uh believe it or not people are not super excited about starting a firm freezing business um and you know i had a few kind of false starts with with trying to launch the company with other people and um, it just didn't work out because they were not as crazy passionate about the idea as I was. And so when I first started, I ended up um, I ended up having to do it by myself. And it just, what it really does is it increases the risk level. It increases the difficulty because yeah. for the first year, at least, I was working basically two shifts. I, I would wake up and I'd work from 11 to 5 or 6. I'd do like a full work day. And then I'd take a couple of hours off and then I'd get back to work at 9 and I would work until about 2 or 3 in the morning. Uh, and part of it is I'm I'm a night owl, so that's when I'm most productive. But it's just the bar that gets set is so much higher, um, and you have to do that much more research to figure out what are the things that I might not be thinking about as a first-time founder. So I want to wrap up uh, with okay. with uh, with a couple of uh, questions, to which sure. I'd like uh, very short answers. If you were to give a commencement speech. To university students, what would you say? I'd say, do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> Who makes the best hummus? The Lebanese. Come on. What kind of question is this? <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of people are claiming. Uh, They're wrong. They're wrong. They're ownership wrong. over hummus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, what are you most excited about? Series A. We're Series A. so close. I can taste it. That's what I'm so excited about. That's fantastic news. And how do you feel after this uh, this conversation? Uh, I feel excellent. I feel guilty because I realized that I'm six minutes late to my own team meeting. Uh, which Where are you going to share your feelings? Norm. <laughs> we'll we'll talk a lot about our feelings. Uh, but I feel I feel great, and uh, it it was nice to talk about something that wasn't work, because that is it ends up inevitably being such a big part of your life. Thank you so much, Khaled. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I hope you felt inspired. There's a link in the show notes to Legacy if you'd like to check them out or offer up some of your wasta to get them to launch in the UAE. Special thanks to Noura Sadaka who worked with our team as a creative consultant for this episode's content and an embodiment coach. 
I'd love to get your feedback. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or IMDb and reach out to me on Instagram at Lulu Hazen. For collaborations, partnerships, or guest recommendations, drop me an email at lulu.hazen at gmail.com. See you in two weeks. Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today.